Welcome back to the swamp, my friends. Today we're going to dive deep into the Canadian wilderness and see what we can find. Today, these viewers sent in their creepy and allegedly true stories from the Canadian wilderness, and hopefully they'll be good enough for you to fall asleep to, or maybe even just keep you up tonight. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. Now, let's jump right into these creepy and allegedly true Canadian wilderness horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. The Tundra of the Lost by Eric M. I embarked on a solo hiking trip deep within the Canadian wilderness, excited to disconnect from the world and reconnect with nature. As an experienced hiker, I hiked many trails before and felt confident in my abilities, so I set off early in the morning with my backpack, supplies, and a map. Feeling the crisp air on my face and the excitement building within me, the trail was beautiful, with towering trees and sparkling streams. I felt a sense of peace and tranquility that I had not experienced in quite some time. However, as the day wore on, the trail became increasingly difficult to navigate. Finally, the map needed to be corrected and I veered off course. I pushed on, determined to find my way back to the main trail, but as the sun began to set, I realized I was hopelessly lost. I set up camp for the night, hoping to find my way back in the morning, but as darkness fell, a sense of unease began to creep over me. Now, it could have just been that it was incredibly eerie, because it was very silent. It was oppressive. The silence of the wilderness is never something that's good, you know? Every rustle of the leaves or any snap of a twig made me jump out of my skin. As I tried to sleep, I heard strange noises in the distance. At first, I thought it was just animals, but as the noises grew more close, I realized it was something else entirely. It sounded like a human, but no one was around for miles. I was sure of it. I huddled in my sleeping bag, too terrified to move. As the footsteps grew louder and louder, suddenly I began to hear what sounded like a voice. But this voice was harsh and in a whisper, and it sounded like it was saying my name. I, I knew I was alone. I had checked, I had made sure, I had periodically checked over my shoulder when I was hiking. There was nobody here. I peeked out of my sleeping bag and I saw a figure standing outside my tent. It was tall and shadowy. It had glowing eyes that seemed to pierce through the darkness. I screamed and scrambled out of my tent, but the figure was gone in an instant. Honestly, the rest of the night was just a blur of terror and confusion. I stumbled through the woods feeling like something was constantly watching me, waiting for me to slip up. Whenever I thought I was safe, the figure would appear again just out of reach. I don't know how I returned to civilization, but I remember feeling like I had narrowly escaped something terrible. To this day, I am haunted by the memory of that figure in the woods and the strange otherworldly presence that seemed to follow me deep within the Canadian wilderness. There's a Wendigo in this park by Anonymous. My family and I were excited to embark on our annual camping trip in Western Canada. We packed our gear and embarked on our journey, eager to explore the region's natural beauty. Little did we know this trip would be unlike any other we had ever experienced. 
As we traveled to the campsite, we were greeted by a park ranger who warned us about the legends of the Wendigo. I thought it was kind of strange, honestly, because, like, aren't those just legends? He explained that according to the indigenous lore, the Wendigo was an evil spirit that haunted the woods and preyed on humans. We honestly kind of laughed it off, thinking it was a local legend to scare tourists, and because he brought it up so forthright, we thought that's what he was trying to do. But, as the night fell, we began to feel that sense of unease you hear about in many of these stories. And, in tradition, the air genuinely grew colder. The wind howled through the trees, and we heard strange noises in the distance. Our campfire seemed to flicker and dance unusually, like it was fighting to stay alive. We dismissed it as our imagination, thinking it was just the excitement of camping in a new location, and obviously the stories from the park ranger creeping up on us. The next day, we went hiking to explore the surrounding wilderness. The scenery was breathtaking, with majestic mountains and crystal clear lakes all around. But as we ventured deeper into the woods, we noticed the trees seemed to be twisted and gnarled, almost as if they were alive and watching us. Out of nowhere, and very suddenly, we heard a blood-curdling scream in the distance. It almost sounded like a human cry at first, but it was unlike anything we had ever heard before. We rushed towards the sound, our hearts pounding with fear. We thought that maybe somebody was hurt, and we did see a figure in the distance as we came upon the scream source. It almost looked like a person, but it was wrong. It was tall and skeletal, with razor-sharp claws and glowing eyes. It, it was exactly what the park ranger told us. It was a wendigo. We tried to run, but this thing was already on us. This wendigo, with its icy breath freezing our bones, it snarled and roared. Its claws was trying to tear at us. We screamed, and we fought back with our lives. We ran as fast as we could, trying to get out of there. We felt trapped. We felt like we were helpless and terrified, that this would be our last days on Earth. We knew we had to leave the woods before this wendigo got to us and killed us. We started sprinting throwing down anything that we could, our backpacks, anything in our pockets, any rocks or twigs that happened to be at arm's length. We were just doing whatever we could. We started zigzagging. We even started doing different maneuvers that we had learned in Boy Scouts. After what felt like many, many hours, but was more than likely only about an hour, we, we got out into civilization again. We, we got out of the wilderness, desperate to find any sign of civilization, and when we first saw a car, we, we flagged them down immediately, got a, got a ride to a small town, and we told everybody our story. But, but nobody believed it, and why would they? Once we finally got out of there and got back home in the safety of our house, we began talking to each other. We still have no idea if this was actually real or not. Maybe we were just so freaked out. But this felt so real. It felt so terrifying. And I'll never forget this. I don't know how I will. There's something that lurks in the Western Canadian wilderness, and I'm telling everybody listening to the Swamp Dweller podcast, please keep your head on a swivel out there. Some things are not just legend. The Mutant Bears of the Yukon by Deep Inuit Legacy I've always been an avid hunter. So when my buddies invited me on a hunting trip in Canada's Yukon Territory, I couldn't resist. We were all excited to bag ourselves some big game. 
and we spent weeks preparing for this trip. Finally, we set out on a clear day, the sun shining bright overhead. The air was crisp and cold, and we could see our breath as we went deeper into the wilderness. As we walked, we noticed tracks in the snow leading in a specific direction. We followed them, hoping that they would lead us to some sort of prey. After several hours, we came upon a clearing in the woods, and that's when we saw it. I mean, at first, I thought it was just a massive grizzly bear. Its fur, black as the night, but as we drew closer, we realized it was much, much worse. The fur wasn't black at all. It was actually covered in blood. The creature stood ten feet tall, towering over us with massive frame. Its fur was matted and unkempt, and all over it was just covered with this dry, black-looking substance that I can only describe as blood. The creature easily stood over ten feet tall. Its eyes glowed with an otherworldly intensity. This was the first time I'd ever seen something like this. We raised our rifles, aiming for the beast's heart. But as we fired, the creature let out a roar, its claws tearing into the snow. It was as if our bullets did not affect it. We ran, our hearts pounding with fear. We knew we were in way over our heads and this creature was way beyond our control. But as we turned to flee, we noticed that it was following us, its heavy footsteps shaking the ground beneath us. We spent the next few hours running through the wilderness, trying to outrun this creature. We had thoughts of climbing trees, but this thing was large and could easily knock one over if it wanted to, and it could probably climb as well. It was always one step ahead of us, taunting us with its unearthly roar. We were out of food and supplies, and we were growing weaker with each hour. Finally, we stumbled upon an abandoned cabin and took refuge inside. We built a little fire, huddled together, and kept warm as much as we could. But we knew the creature was still out there waiting for us, and we knew it would be trying to break in at any moment. We raised our rifles, ready to defend ourselves as this thing was pounding on the door. But it was almost like right before it was going to break through, it stopped. We thought it might be gone. But then suddenly the door burst open and the creature lunged at us. We raised our rifles, but it was, it was definitely too late. The beast had nearly had us in its grasp. I heard a sudden explosion and I noticed that my friend's gun had gone off and the beast had suddenly been sh- and the beast had been injured in the face. It started clawing at its face. I, I don't know if the bullet was stuck or what happened, but it gave us just enough time to scramble outside of the cabin and run away. As we began to run, we heard this thing roaring, roaring in pain. It looked like it might have been blinded somewhat as it came out of the building, stumbling and running and trying to find us. We took this opportunity to run as fast as we could in the opposite direction that it was looking, and we just never stopped. Eventually, we came across an old logging road and followed it long enough to find a ranger station. And from there, we got help and told them our story of being mauled by a freakishly large brown bear. From time to time, I still find myself waking up screaming in the night with nightmares about that creature. I don't think it was any normal bear. I mean, this thing was twice the size of a regular grizzly bear. Whatever was matted on it, it almost... This thing just almost felt like a zombie that was just made to kill and eat. And I know that's basically what these things are, they're killing machines. But this just felt different. I don't truly know the horrors that I witnessed on that hunting trip. But I'll tell you one thing. I have a deep respect for the nature that I never had before.
My Road Trip Into the Darkness by Angela I had been planning to visit my family, who lived in the remote areas of British Columbia, Canada, for quite a few months now. It had been years since I had last seen them, and I decided it was time to make the trip. So I packed my bags, got in my car, and set out on the long road trip. The drive was peaceful and uneventful for the most part, and I enjoyed the beautiful scenery that passed by my windows. The mountains loomed large in the distance, and the forests were thick and lush. But as I made my way deeper into the remote areas, things started to change. The road became narrower, the forest grew denser, and finally, the sun set. I realized I was low on gas, I spotted a small gas station up ahead and pulled in, relieved to be able to fill up my tank and continue on my journey. As I drove on, I realized I had made a grave mistake. I should have taken a map or a GPS with me because I was utterly lost, and there were no signs to help me. The road twisted and turned, and I was driving through a dense forest stretching on for what felt like forever. Then, suddenly, I saw something in the distance. It was some sort of figure standing in the middle of the road, and as I drew closer, I realized it was a woman. She was dressed in an old-fashioned looking clothing. Her hair was long and dark. I slowed down, wondering if she needed help. But as I got closer, I saw that something was off about her. Her eyes were empty, and her skin was pale as if she had seen a ghost. She stared at me, and I realized she, she wasn't looking at me. She was looking through me. Uh, I, I, I freaked out for a minute, contemplating what to do, and as she looked at me again, I suddenly had this wave of fear. I sped up, feeling a chill run down my spine, but as I drove away, I saw more figures in the distance. They were all standing in the middle of the road, watching me as I drove by. I realized they were all dressed in old-fashioned clothing, and their eyes were empty, just like the first woman. I tried to shake off the unease that had settled over me at this point, but it was useless. I couldn't help but feel like I was being watched from all directions and that something was just wrong with this place. As I drove on, I saw more and more figures, all standing in the middle of the road watching me as I drove by. Finally, I came upon a small town and pulled into a motel to spend the night. Again, I just could not brush off this strange experience on the road but it was hard to shake the feeling of unease that had settled over me and seemingly embedded itself into my bones. The next day, I decided to ask the locals about the strange figures on the road. They told me legends about a group of settlers who had been lost in the woods and had died in a snowstorm. Their bodies were never recovered and their spirits were said to haunt these woods looking for a way out. I saw the figures again as I drove back on that same road. This time I slowed down, rolled down my windows hoping to get a closer look but as I drew near, the figures vanished into the thin air around me, leaving me alone on the deserted road. I'll never forget that experience. As I drove on, I, I did have a great time with my family, but years later, I still get a little chill down my spine when I think about the figures in the street. I don't know if the stories are true, but they seem to be true from what I saw. Hey guys, I hope you're having a great day. It's your boy Swamp Dweller back 
with another spooky video where I will once again be on screen telling some spooky stories from the great outdoors per the usual. With that said, I hope you're all having a great day. Sit back and relax because today's episode is going to be pretty brutal. One of the worst mass killings in Canadian history. Tonight's story takes place in the magnificent Wells Gray Provincial Park in central British Columbia, Canada. The area is absolutely stunning and is on my bucket list personally of places to visit. With over 40 waterfalls, ancient volcanoes, and glaciers that have carved out rivers, there is nothing but serene beauty all around. On August 2nd, 1982, the Johnson family set off for a two-week vacation, spending a few days visiting friends in Red Deer, Alberta, before making their way to Wells Gray Park. Bob and Jackie Johnson were in their early 40s. They traveled with their two daughters, 13-year-old Janet and 11-year-old Karen. The family had planned to spend some time hiking and fishing with Jackie's parents, George and Edith Bentley, who were 66 and 59, respectively. Jackie's parents were married for 36 years and recently had sold their house to be able to travel more. The couple even bought a brand new 1981 Ford pickup truck with an attached camper to travel full-time. One of Bob's best friends described the family as being incredibly close and they all got along very, very well, especially when hanging out outdoors doing their favorite things such as fishing and hiking and camping. Grandpa George preferred quiet days alone, fishing or camping, or spending time with his granddaughters. Grandma Edith was much more outgoing and lived for trips with her family and grandchildren as much as she could. In addition to their adult daughter, Jackie, George and Edith also had two other grown children, Brian and Karen, who lived near Vancouver. The Disappearance on August 16th, Bob Johnson failed to return to work at Gorman Brothers Lumber in West Bank. The Vancouver Sun reported that in Robert's 25 years of working at the mill, he had never before overstayed his vacation by any days. His colleagues wanted to take their concerns to the mill's manager, but coincidentally, he was also on vacation at the time. Instead, the workers called Jackie's brother and sister to check on the Johnsons. Jackie's siblings, Brian and Karen, went to the Johnsons' home in West Bank, and everything in the three-bedroom family home looked normal. The phone line and electricity were operable. There was food in the pantry, and unpaid bills piled neatly on the coffee table. Family waited to call authorities, hoping to hear from their parents or Robert and Jackie. When Bob's manager returned to work after his vacation, Bob had still not returned and that's when he was officially reported missing to RCMP on August 23, 1982, a full week after he was due. Of course, everyone feared a car accident or was worried that the family were perhaps lost somewhere in the forest, but the truth would be far more devastating. RCMP officials launched a massive search in Wells Gray Provincial Park, and investigators fanned out across the nearby town of Clearwater relying on information from eyewitnesses who had seen the Johnson sedan or the Bentley's truck during the dates they were known to be camping. Airplanes were brought in to search washed out areas for any sign of the vehicles, tents, or remnants in remote locations, or the metal boat which had been attached atop the camper. Two weeks of intense searches went without a single clue to the family's whereabouts. No sign of the cars, no metal boat, no tent, absolutely nothing. Police didn't know it at the time, but there was a huge clue right under their noses. A Chilling Discovery 
Five weeks after the family was last heard from, a mushroom picker named Kurt Crack found a burnt car 13 aerial miles from Bear Creek on a rural logging road. The driver's side door was still open. The car matched the description of the Johnson's 1979 Plymouth Caravelle. Detectives checked the license plate number and, sure enough, it came back as belonging to Bob and Jackie. It was fairly evident to the officials that whoever lit this car on fire didn't just add a little bit of accelerant, they definitely, uh, they went overboard to say the least. Whoever set it on fire had to have doused it in gasoline because everything from the springs to the floorboards, every little piece of metal was melted down to almost absolutely nothing. Inside the car's back seat was a pile of burnt bones, which were later identified as that of four adults. Inside the trunk were the remains of two girls, and unfortunately, but finally, the Johnson family and Bentley families had been found. Forensic analysis of the bone fragment showed that the family had been killed by a 22 caliber gun. Because the location was in an area that wasn't very easily accessible at all, it was assumed that a local may be involved with this crime. Investigators found six spent 22 caliber bullet casings around the area and some beer caps from a brand that Bob Johnson was known to drink, as well as some full bottles of beer still cooling off in the nearby stream. This detail of the gun caliber, however, was held back from the press for some time. All they initially were letting on was that they thought that these two families had been murdered, and of course they were killed by shooting. They wanted to keep the specific weapon and caliber a secret because only the killer would know what caliber was used. Still, the Bentley's 1981 Ford truck camper and belongings were never found. The investigation. Authorities were able to confirm that before checking in with their adult daughter Karen, George and Edith Bentley did sign their names in a check-in book on August 3rd. But afterwards, government employees in the park went on strike, so that meant that no one had put in the registry for a couple of days. So, no one would have noticed if they were missing or not. A gas station clerk in Clearwater told the police they had given the Johnson family directions. They sent them down into the park via an old logging road. This was on the weekend of August 7th and August 8th. The clerk positively identified the girls in the picture the RCMP was showing around. The gas station attendant specifically told the RCMP that the family were looking for good camping spots specifically near wildberries because they wanted to collect some. The directions the clerk gave the Johnson family would have put them on that old logging road the same day heavy rains would have been coming in. News of the six horrific murders and arson spread far across Canada. Families in all provinces, but more specifically British Columbia, were absolutely on high alert. They were terrified that this murderer could strike again at any moment and it could potentially be their family that was next. People and news outlets alike all theorized that this wasn't the work of just one man, this must have been the work of a team of killers. Heavy speculation was going on that Wells Gray Park may just have a team of murderers on their hand. Desperate for leads. By March of 1983, RCMP still had no named suspects and allowed something quite surprising. 
They let a Canadian documentary crew from a program called Citizens Alert put together a segment on the unsolved murders. A reenactment of the killings was filmed and then broadcast across Canada. Police had hoped the reenactment would spark someone's memory. The police were flooded with calls after this, but no solid leads ever came from this endeavor. In an effort to drum up any sort of leads, police investigators made an exact replica of the 1981 Ford camper that went missing, including the aluminum boat strapped to the top. In May, they drove the camper to British Columbia from Quebec, holding press conferences to publicize that the camper was coming to each city so people could get a good look at it and know if they've seen it or not, or if they see it in the future, they would be aware of what it was. Over 1,300 alleged sightings came flooding into the RCMP and they had to investigate every single one of them. The RCMP also posted a $7,500 reward for any information that would lead to the arrest of the perpetrator. They also printed 10,000 missing persons posters. They sent them out to police detachments and post offices all across North America. By September though, investigators started to put their attention on one specific lead. A mechanic from an auto body shop in Windsor, Ontario came forward with some information and reported that two men who did resemble the composite sketches that were circulating around at the time asked him to paint the outside of a 1980 Ford truck. This mechanic said that both the men spoke with a thick French-Canadian accent. Apparently, they were carrying around a 22 caliber handgun as well, and apparently they even asked the mechanic where a good place to dispose of the gun was. The mechanic told the RCMP detectives that after he painted the vehicle for the two men, they told him that they were headed down south. Apparently, they were going to go across the U.S.-Canadian border and jump over into Detroit, Michigan. As officials in Canada began to try to contact people down in the Detroit, Michigan area so that authorities in the United States could track down these two men, forestry workers back in Wells Gray Provincial Park made a uh, rather astounding discovery. On October 18, 1983, two forestry workers walking through the woods on a remote mountainside in the park noticed something odd in a thick section of evergreens and brush. Behind these branches would be the remnants of a burnt-out truck with a camper on the back. These two forestry workers, of course, called the police right away. Within just a matter of hours, the RCMP descended upon the location to confirm that this was indeed a vehicle a part of the investigation. After obtaining the license plate number, they were able to confirm 100% that this was the Johnson's Ford pickup truck. And apparently, the Bentley's truck never left the park at all. So, that tip from earlier turned out to just be something coincidental, even though it also seems pretty sus. The location of the truck was about seven and a half miles away from the burnt Plymouth that had been found, and less than 20 miles away from the campsite that the authorities knew to be the main crime scene. The discovery of the Bentley's pickup truck brought both relief, but absolute shame and a bit of humiliation to be honest to the RCMP investigators. They had to publicly admit on national television that they had been chasing basically false leads for an entire year when everything was right under their nose. Former detectives in several interviews over the years have admitted that it was pretty embarrassing and they were dismayed at how much time they had wasted in that year following false leads that didn't end up helping anything. Finding a Killer 
with the Bentley's truck and camper identified, investigators restarted and started their entire investigation from fresh again. The truck being hidden so well in a very thick wooded area in a ravine was fairly curious to the investigators. Police actually had to chop down a significant amount of trees just to get the truck out of there and process it. According to an article in the Vancouver Sun, the underbrush was so thick that RCMP officials who were flying any sort of helicopter or plane would never have been able to see the vehicle among the brush. It was so covered in foliage it just wouldn't have been noticeable. One search and rescue volunteer told the newspaper that in the remote area where the camper was found you could easily be only 15 feet away from it and not even know it was there. That's genuinely how dense these woods are. RCMP told the news outlets that since this was in such a remote and hard to get to area, that only someone who was local and lived in this area for a long amount of time would likely be the person who committed this. When detectives searched the surrounding area, they did notice it wasn't very far from a cliff. RCMP had deduced that the driver had likely intended to launch the vehicle off the cliff into the ravine, but evidently they were not able to get as far as they had wanted. The truck was so severely burned they weren't even able to tell if the aluminum boat was still attached at the top or not. The truck body, camper shell, and the interior had all melted into each other, forming basically one big massive pile of wreckage. Unfortunately, this meant that finding any sort of forensic evidence like DNA, fingerprints, hair, etc. would basically be impossible. Cleansed by fire, if you will. One notable discovery at the camper though was a single 22 caliber bullet hole on the side of the camper. At this point, investigators re-canvassed and re-interviewed everyone who lived in Clearwater and the surrounding areas, trying to resurface any clues they may have missed the first time around. They no longer believed the killer had left Canada. They now believed they had taken off into other provinces. Officials with the RCMP were very confident that the killer was a local, and they likely only needed a 22 caliber gun and an axe to get away with this crime. Police officers brought in dozens of people for questioning and interviews. They ran 24-7 surveillance on many people with extensive criminal backgrounds in the area, and of course made every single one of them take polygraphs. And according to news reports that I could find, every single one of them seemingly passed those polygraphs. According to the Wells Gray Gunman documentary, after two weeks of doing this non-stop, authorities finally caught a break when they visited the home of an elderly couple living in Clearwater. Before leaving the man and woman's home, the wife brought up and said, tell the officers something Dave said. The husband was reluctant to elaborate, but eventually with some coaxing by the RCMP, did further share details. A man a few months earlier named Dave had asked them how you would register a vehicle with a bullet hole in the side of it. Kind of a strange question, right? Bingo. At the time, RCMP thought they had finally found their red herring. Also at the time, authorities never had released any information about there being a bullet hole in the door of the truck. They had mentioned that all the victims had been shot to death, but they had never ever said anything about the caliber or the extent of the damage done to the vehicles. They had just said they had been burned. They never said anything about any bullet shots, any gun holes, anything like that. The couple told officers the man they knew as Dave was 24 years old. His full name was David William Shearing. 
They said in the summer of 1983, he had recently moved to the Clearwater area after living on his family's farm, just outside of the Wells Gray Park area. RCMP had apparently interviewed David once before, earlier on in the investigation as they were going door to door for any sort of tips or information. At the time though, apparently nothing about David seemed very suspicious or off-putting to the officers. When the police tried to locate him in late October of 1983, they discovered he no longer lived in Clearwater. Of course, why would he stay around, right? They dug into his background fairly deeply and found that he was actually connected to another set of murders in British Columbia. In that incident, a witness came forward and claimed that David had hit a victim with his car just outside of Wells Gray Provincial Park. David had allegedly struck the vehicle, ran them over, and never looked back. RCMP searched for the records and realized that nobody had ever been arrested or accused for that crime. I mean, somebody died and nobody ever got justice. David luckily remains the only suspect. David at the time was living in an area known as Tumblr Ridge, British Columbia, which is about 900 miles north of Wells Gray Park. That's quite the track. Maybe you're running from something, huh? RCMP investigators reached out to the local RCMP chief investigator in that area. His name was Ron German. Ron told the homicide investigators that he was aware who David Shearing was because he had arrested him multiple times for petty theft and traffic violations. Ron said that David would never look him in the eyes, which was always off-putting, and had a general demeanor of being unsavory and definitely not trustworthy. Just a few months after David had moved to Tumblr Ridge, Ron had pulled him over for a routine traffic stop. He noticed David was hauling a bunch of newer looking tools in the back of his pickup truck. When the detective asked David where these tools had come from, he claimed that they were his and he was coming back from a work site. The next day, Ron got a call from two stores in town that they were missing over $40,000 worth of tools that had been stolen. Ron arrested David for the theft, but Canadian laws in the 1980s for theft were fairly lax and they weren't very heavy-handed, if you would. So unfortunately, David was released and continued to commit misdemeanors and thefts throughout the town. When Ron learned that David was the main suspect for the Bentley Johnson murders, he immediately knew he had to arrest him as quickly as he could. However, his counterparts in Clearwater told him to hold off, at least just for now. They wanted to surveil David a bit more and see if they could gather any more information that could incriminate him further. Exactly one month and a day after the discovery of the burnt out camper, RCMP team led by Chief Ron German approached David as he was getting off of a local bus to come into the station for some questioning. David asked if he was under arrest and Ron said no. Ron said he and David rode for two hours in his squad car until they reached the RCMP post in Dawson's Creek. This place would be better equipped with interrogation rooms that would help keep it a bit more private as well as recording what was going on inside the investigation room. The entire drive, David was calm, didn't really say much. He sat in the back seat with no handcuffs on, smoking a cigarette, but Ron he was anything but calm. Once at Dawson's Creek, Ron German handed over David to RCMP investigator Michael Easton and another detective from Clearwater. Now, Michael was actually the only RCMP investigator I was able to actually get pictures of for this video for you. Even though they didn't have any physical evidence that would tie David to the murders in the Wells Gray Park area, they decided to try to push forward and get a confession anyway. 
Investigator Eastham asked David about the hit and run that he was apparently cited at. Eastham told filmmaker Steve Allen that at the first mention of the hit and run, David immediately softened up and honestly appeared to be relieved. Within just a few minutes, David completely confessed to the deadly hit and run. Leaning into David's sense of relief for confessing about the hit and run, authorities then confronted him about the Bentley and Johnson murders. For more than 45 minutes, authorities talk all about the details of this case. Everything they were talking about with David was public knowledge. They discussed the victims, where their burnt cars were found, and then investigator Eastham asked David if he remembered about hearing where the victims had been killed. David answered and said Bear Creek Campground. Now this was finally the investigator's ace in the hole. The RCMP had never said anything publicly about the campground. The location of what the investigators believed to be the initial crime scene was always kept very close to their chests and never one time was it discussed in the public. David had slipped up and Easton had knew it. The next few moments were incredibly crucial for the investigators to get David to confess to these murders. They told news outlets that the moment David realized he had said the location of the murders, he began to sweat profusely. He began chain smoking cigarettes and becoming combative. The RCMP investigators did not let up there though. They became much more aggressive with their line of questioning and after around 30 minutes of this, David broke down and began to cry. He had confessed that he had done all six killings and disposed of the family's belongings. The Confession After writing a full confession, David agreed to create a full map of the Wells Gray Park and walk through how he stalked and killed the families all the way back in August of 1982. He saw the group several times at Bear Creek campsite while driving to and from his parents' ranch in the area. One night, he snuck down to the area and caught the family by surprise while they were relaxing around the campfire. He said Bob Johnson saw him come out of the woods with a gun and fired at him first. He then shot and killed George, Jackie, and Edith at point-blank range. He said the last two people he shot were Karen and Janet. He swore that his only motivation behind killing the family was to steal their possessions, vehicles, and tools. Investigators didn't believe theft to be a strong motivator to kill six people, and if you're asking me personally, I don't know if that's necessarily a motivator for killing six people either. They suspected that the crime was more sexually motivated, specifically towards Karen and Janet. After several more hours of questioning, Eastham asked him directly if he sexually assaulted the girls. David eventually relented and confessed that he did, in fact, abduct Karen and Janet from the campsite after the killings. He kept them alive for several days in the woods, so he could continue assaulting them when he felt like it. He took them to his parents' ranch in a remote cabin in the woods. At one point, David said a prison guard working around the area in Clearwater where his cabin was came knocking on the door one day. Apparently, Karen and Janet were inside, still alive. David was able to get the guard to leave, but this encounter spooked him. Fearing that he would be caught, David took the two girls out to the woods and shot them the very next day. He then placed their bodies in the trunk of their Plymouth, doused it in gasoline, 
and set it ablaze, hoping to hide any trace of evidence. While walking the police through his crime, he had taken detectives to his family's farm and showed them multiple items that he had kept hidden. Multiple of these belongings belonged to the Bentleys and Johnsons. In the hiding spot, he also showed the investigators the 22 caliber rifle he had used to kill the family. The announcement of the arrest of the mass murderer sent shockwaves but relieved through the Canadian public. Most were glad to see someone being held responsible for the killings. But many in Clearwater who knew David were stunned to learn that he was the culprit. Former high school classmates and friends of David in the town described him as quiet, polite, and, you know, highly intellectual. Apparently, he never really got into fights, never really had any problems, but, you know, what they say about the quiet kids. His mother, Rose, did tell the newspaper that David never really had a steady girlfriend or any sort of strong friendship. He was the youngest of three children and had always worked odd jobs his entire life. He mainly lived in the Clearwater area and basically stayed at home for most of his time. In 1983, he finally moved out of the family ranch to Tumblr Ridge to apparently find work at a coal mine in the area. David's former employer said that sometime in 1982 when David's father died, it really seemed to affect him. Apparently, his father died of a heart attack. Apparently, this event was so upsetting that he had to emphasize this by committing mass murder, but hey, to each their own. On April 16, 1984, David would finally go to trial for the murders. The Trial David pleaded guilty to all charges and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years, which is the maximum sentence under Canadian law. Canada's criminal justice system allows offenders, even if they are a self-admitted rapist, murderer, etc., the option of parole after 25 years. The people of British Columbia were rightfully outraged by this. Many wanted David to be put to death for his crimes, and many can argue that he definitely deserves it. According to the Edmonton Journal, David, by that point who had changed his last name to Ennis, applied for parole in 2008 at the age of 49. After more than 9,000 people signed a petition saying David should not be released, the National Parole Board denied his hearing. The board has also ruled the same way every time he has tried to apply in 2012, 2014, and even as recently as 2021. After impact statements were heard from the friends and family, members of the Canadian Parole Board really started to weigh out what risk would be held if he was ever put out. They would ask David about his past to see if he was at risk of reoffending. In the end, the parole board did say while they have noticed many positive strides in David's life to be a better person, due to his incarceration, they didn't think he was ready for release. Parole board Delaney Dew thanked everyone who participated in giving her impact statements. Before making a statement, she read aloud to Dennis saying, You're serving a life sentence, but the victims, the community, they're serving an indeterminate sentence. There are some positives in your case. You understand that you're a work in progress, but there are overwhelming negative aspects in your case. The most appropriate place for you to make the gains is in the safety and security of the Institute. I've got to say, David seems to be living a pretty good life despite being behind bars. He married a woman in 1995 and gets conjugal visits where he gets to visit his children. He claims that he has found faith with God and has reformed entirely, but um, what serial killer doesn't say that? Author Alan Warren interviewed David in prison for his book Murder Time 6. After interviewing David in person, 
The interviewer allegedly left the prison with the impression that David really did want to be a changed man. But then again, Alan said, that's exactly what all serial killers do. During his interviews, Alan got to see the inside of David's cell. The small space was simple, had a TV, and on a regular basis, David could come and go as he pleased from his cell, even finding time to tend the garden in the prison yard. Thanks for listening to these creepy and downright strange Canadian wilderness horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to double slap that like button to make sure it feels it. Be sure to subscribe if you're new and turn on notifications to never miss a new episode as it helps the swamp grow its ever-expanding waters. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. You can also submit it via reddit at r slash thedarkswamp. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. I share stories nearly every single day and all things natural and supernatural. If you're on the go but don't have YouTube Premium, but you still want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and pretty much everywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. If you're listening over there, it would be great if you could give us a 5-star rating as it helps the show grow. If you made it all the way to the end, be sure to let me know which story tonight was your favorite. I always like to see which ones are the fan favorites. It lets me focus on those types of stories more so you guys can have more enjoyable videos. If you made it all the way to the end, don't forget to drop that code word, shimmering turtle to confuse anybody who doesn't make it to the end and i just love seeing your creative comments you guys are definitely incredibly funny thank you guys as always for supporting the swamp i can't wait to see you guys soon with another creepy video